Bible school, and this is Brother Roger Lewis's uh, classes on the spiritual habits and the saints of God, and this is the first class called uh, Grasping the Key of God Manifestation. Thanks, Seth, and good morning. You all ready for lunch? It's too early. So uh, I'm from New Zealand and uh, from Christchurch, where all the earthquakes have been in the last few years. And um, as Seth has just announced, our second class in the morning for this Bible school is on the spiritual habits of the saints of God and our first study here, Grasping the Key of God Manifestation. I'm really just going to walk you through one key idea this morning that I have found to be very helpful in understanding this idea of God manifestation from the Bible. It's like a thematic, really. Um, But I'm going to get you to walk through it with me because I'm going to just take you through a set of scriptural passages so that we can tie this one idea together. Because I believe that this is where the whole of the truth begins and ends. That if you're to know what is a Christadelphian and what do Christadelphians believe, this is the single greatest doctrine that sets our community aside and apart from all the churches that are outside. God manifestation. Understanding the real purpose of God. But to do that this morning, I'm going to walk you through a a theme of, of an idea. In fact, if you come back to the book of Genesis in chapter 12... Uh, What's interesting here is you'll all know the story of Abraham and uh, the fact that the promise of God was given to this man. And in Genesis chapter 12, the record says this. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 says, Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now we've probably all heard that promise before. We've all read Genesis chapter 12 before. We're all familiar with the promise of God made to Abraham on this occasion. Incidentally, when do you think, where do you think Abram was when this promise was first made to him? Anyone like to have a guess? Where exactly do you think Abram was when this promise was first made to him? The one that's mentioned in Genesis 12. But where was he when it began, do you think? Any thoughts on that? Yes. Yes. It actually goes all the way back to Ur of the Chaldees. So the, the promise concerning this blessing of God that would come upon him doesn't just happen at the time he's about to come into the land of Canaan. It, it started all the way back in Ur of the Chaldees. He was in Ur when this promise first began, when the revelation of God to him first began. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 22, if you just come to chapter 22 for a moment, do you remember how that much later on in the story of Abraham, after he's offered Isaac his son, the record says this in verse 16. 
It says that the angel of God spoke to Abram, Genesis 22 verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, we're not quite at the end of, J- of Abraham's story here, but, but in a sense, we're pretty much at the end of the story, because he's, he's going to die in Genesis chapter 25, and this is already Genesis chapter 22. He, he's over 100 years old at the time of Genesis 22. So now the promise is given to Abraham again, and that promise is that he would be blessed, that he would be multiplied, and that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now we all know that story, but let me show you something interesting two chapters later on in Exodus, uh, Genesis chapter 26. Because of course Abram had a son, and Abram's son's name was Isaac. And this is what the record says in Genesis 26 and verse 2. It says, And Yahweh appeared unto Isaac and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. And I will give thee these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father, And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Ah, now that's the same blessing that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. Now that same blessing, the same terms of the blessing, are given to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. Now, can you think of anyone else that this blessing is given to? In thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. Given to Abraham, chapter 12 and 22. Given to Isaac, chapter 26. Can you think of anyone else that that blessing was given to? Yes? Proof. Mere assertion. Give me biblical evidence. You're absolutely right, but where's the passage? Where does that happen? Ah, okay, Genesis 28, verse... All right, so verse 10, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran, absolutely right, lighted in a certain place, dreamed a dream, and the record says in verse 14, shall we take up verse 14, and now unto Jacob it says, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. So absolutely right. So now we've got a promise. Now what's interesting about this is we've got a promise now that's actually made to three people, but they're not just anyone, are they? This promise is made to a father and to a son and to a grandson in the same family. The same promise made to three generations of the same family. Now I don't know if you know what happens in the Hebrew language, but if you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, what do you do? Anyone know? What do you do when you emphasize something in Hebrew? Or how do you emphasize something in, in Hebrew? You say it three times. Yeah, actually, well, you just say it twice. To, to, to double something is to emphasize it. 
but to say it three times, whoa, that's really emphasizing it. You know, there's an interesting passage in the book of Jeremiah where it says, oh, earth, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. And if you hadn't woken up by then, you should have, because there's something obviously very important about that statement. Oh, earth, earth, earth. Well, here is a promise given once, given twice, given three times to a father, to a son, to a grandson. There's obviously something highly significant about this particular promise and these particular men. Now, why that's interesting is because if we come to, uh, if we come to uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 3, what we've got in Exodus chapter 3 is the story of Moses at the, uh, at the time that God will appear unto him. And in Exodus chapter 3, do you remember the story of the burning bush? The record says in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 3, it says, he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So now what's interesting about this, can I go back to, the, to that first slide again? So what's interesting about this in, in Exodus chapter 3 is that when Moses is addressed by God, he says, I'm the God of thy father. Actually, when this particular passage is quoted in Acts 7, it says, I'm the God of thy fathers. And, and he, he explains what that means by saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. So in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is addressed by God, God doesn't just say, I'm God. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And clearly there's a reason why he must describe himself in that way. There's some connection between God and who God is and how God wants to be seen and known and the fact that he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Oh, and do you notice this? By the way, who was Jacob's most famous son? In the next generation of that family, who would you say was the most famous son of Jacob? Anyone like to have a guess? Who would you say? Joseph. Probably Joseph. Does it ever say, I'm the God of Joseph? No. It never says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? No. Does it ever, does it ever say, I'm the God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? Those three generations? No. It only ever says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that brings us to Exodus chapter 3 here and verse 4. Because in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4, we've got the, the story in Scripture of God revealing his divine name. And God said unto Moses, verse 14, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So this I am that I am business in verse 14. So does anyone know what I am that I am means uh, in the Hebrew? Anyone know what the Hebrew is for I am that I am? 
I am that I am. You want to know what the Hebrew is for that phrase in Exodus 3 verse 14? Uh, Elohim? No, it's not Elohim. It is going to be Elohim in, in verse 15, by the way, when it says, Yahweh Elohim of your fathers has sent me. It's going to be mentioned there. But just the words, I am that I am, what are those words in the, in the Hebrew? Does anyone know in, in verse, uh, verse 14? Okay. It's all right, no worries. A little bit tricky to drive. It's in there somewhere. Okay. So the actual words for I am that I am are the Hebrew words Aya, Asher, Aya. Now, who's heard those before, by the way? Just a show of hands, just so that I'm, I'm clear of what I'm dealing with here. Who's heard of Aya, Asher, Aya? So what that's really saying is there's only two words here in this phrase, I am that I am, and the word I am is the word aya, and the word that in the middle is the word asher, and the word I am again is the word aya. Now, does anyone know what the word aya actually does mean? Because it doesn't really mean I am. I am is in the present, isn't it? I am right now. I am. I am today, I am now. But actually the word aya, which incidentally is spelt E-Y-E-H, aya, asher is as it sounds, A-S-H-E-R, like the name of the tribe. So aya, asher, aya. So aya doesn't actually mean I am, even though it's translated in our English Bible, I am. It actually means I will be. Now what's the difference between I am and I will be? What's the difference? Yes. I will be is future. Now, do you know, do you see in verse 12, when it says in verse 12, God said, certainly I will be with thee. Now, you see that phrase, I will, in that verse? Well, you'd never guess what the Hebrew word is. I will be with thee. Exodus 3, verse 12, it's the word ayah. I will be with thee. It's a future word. It's got a future meaning a future uh, uh, aspect to it. So when in Exodus 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, Aya, Asher, Aya, is the basis of my name, what it really means is, I will be that, I will be. Except the word that doesn't actually mean that either. The word that in the middle, the word Asher, actually means who. So the real meaning of I am that I am and if you haven't got this in your Bible, it's probably a helpful thing to write, is Aya, Asha, Aya really means I will be who I will be. Now, tell me what you think that, what that appears to be saying. Like it sounds quite cryptic and enigmatic really, but if someone said to you, my name is, I will be who I will be, what would you say that they're trying to say? Any thoughts on that? 
What would they be trying to say? I will be who I will be. Well, let me put it on the screen for you here because I have got um, a, a good explanation of it. Uh, it comes from Brother Thomas uh, in his book, uh, Phanerosis. So what he says is this concerning the meaning uh, of this. And we certainly have some textual problems here because this is green on the screen, but in my slide it's black. Uh, and the blue is the blue, but so yeah, there's something happened in terms of colour registrations. But can you all see that, even though it's in green? Main thing is, as long as we can read it, who cares about the colours? So Brother Thomas says this. He said the memorial in its simplest form is Aya. He's added an H there. Aya, Asha, Aya. I will be who I will be. Asha, which is the word who, now listen to this, is the relative pronoun. It's both singular and plural, masculine and feminine, that word in the middle. It's both singular and plural, masculine and feminine. It will therefore stand for 10,000 times 10,000, as well as for two or three persons. The other two words of the memorial, the word aya here and the word aya there, are the first person singular future tense of the verb higher to be. The first person singular future tense of the verb to be. Now I know all that sounds terribly complex, but do you know what Brother Thomas is really saying is this. In this memorial, he says the eternal spirit is the I, and the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the who, of whom it is memorialized that they shall be. Which in Brother Thomas' language is really simply saying this, is that when God said, Aya, Asha, Aya, I will be who I will be, what he was really saying was this, so watch my hands. I will be first person, singular, future. That's one person, isn't it? I, singular, will be future. And again at the end, I, singular, will be one person. That's God himself. But in the middle, well, who's he going to be? And the answer is, well, the word who is singular and plural, masculine and feminine. So who do you think the who is in the middle? If a word means both singular and plural and masculine and feminine, who might the who be in the middle? Any thoughts? If a word can be singular and plural, masculine and feminine, it applies to everyone who may become part of God's purpose. It's the multitude of everyone that becomes involved in God's purpose. But at the end of the day, who are they? When you put them all together, that multitude of men and women, singular and plural, when you gather them all together, who are they? They are one singular God, ultimately, that's what God manifestation is all about. God himself says, I, God, singular, intend to be enthroned upon the earth in a multitude of people who are all like me, think like me, act like me, speak like me, and in the end look like me. And when the earth is filled with my glory, then I will be God in the totality of my purpose, which is to be enthroned in a multitude of people who are so like me that I've manifested myself in all the earth. Now, can you imagine if any one of us said, if any one of us said, 
my purpose is to multiply myself because I'm so perfect. What would you think about that person? If anyone of you said to someone else, well, I hope to replicate myself because I'm just so wonderful and so amazing and so good, we would probably think that they might be a tad egocentric, right? But God is perfect. So it's absolutely logical for God to say, I will multiply myself because he's multiplying perfection. Who better could God multiply than himself because he is perfect? He's utterly and absolutely and totally perfect. So hidden in this phrase, is God's intention to enthrone himself in a multitude of mighty ones. Now I'm not sure why we've got all that interesting stuff on the, on the board there, but um, let's move on. So now the, the thing that, that comes out of that is that this, um, this idea then that God's name is expressive of his purpose. First of all, in verse 14, he says, I will be who I will be. And then God said, verse 15, God said unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial for all generations. So even the name of God is connected still somehow with I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Even after he's expressed all this. Oh, incidentally, when it says Aya in verse 14, but in verse 15 it says, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh has sent me unto you. Does anyone know the difference between the word Aya in verse 14 and the word Yahweh in verse 15? Anyone know the difference at all? You know why there is a change from Aya in verse 14 to the word Yahweh in verse 15. Anyone like to have a guess? By the way, do they sound sort of similar? Aya, Yahweh, there's actually a connection here because in fact they're the same word. The only difference is that the word Aya is the verb, I will be, that's a verb. The word Yahweh is the noun of the same Hebrew word. And the word Yahweh means he who will be. So Aya, I will be. That's the verb. Yahweh, the noun, is he who will be. So Yahweh comes from this word. Yahweh comes from this idea. The promise of the Yahweh name is that God intends to be manifested in a multitude of mighty ones. Now, why that's interesting is that, and we, we won't turn all these passages up, but when you actually come through the, the, through the Bible record, I'll give them to you just in case you want to take a note of them, but do you know that right through the Bible record, when people speak about God, they say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David says that in the First Chronicles 29 verse 18 in one of his prayers. He calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah, in his prayer on Mount Carmel, in the first of Kings 18, verse 36, calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Hezekiah in the second of Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 6 calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And likewise in the New Testament, Christ refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Luke 20 verse 37. And Peter makes reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Acts 3 and verse 13. And Stephen makes reference to the God of Jacob in Acts 7 verse 32. So Old Testament, New Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, as we said before, what's interesting about this is that we never ever hear God describing himself as I'm the God of Jacob, Joseph and Ephraim. That's three generations later in the same family. God never describes himself as I'm the God of Aaron and Eleazar and Phineas. God never describes himself by saying I'm the God of Jesse and David and Solomon. Now there's lots of other faithful people in the Bible, but he never ever describes himself as the God of those people in the sense of one, two, three generations. Never. It's only ever, only ever, only ever the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Do you know that from David through to Stephen, it's about 1,500 years, the Jewish people used that term to describe God for 1,500 years. Now the question is, and this is what good Bible study is all about, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why, why, why does God call himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? There's got to be a reason for that. And good Bible study starts by asking questions. Why does God want to be called that? Why does God want to be known by that name? Well, let me show you one more reference before we get into the answer. It's in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Now turn this one up because it's a, it's a very helpful reference in terms of understanding what this little story is about and, and what I think we're intended to learn from this title of God. So in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it says in verse, maybe starting from verse 8, Hebrews 11 verse 8, it says, By faith Abram, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with, or notice this, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So do you notice that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 9, sojourning together, as it were, heirs of the same promise, which is exactly what we found in the book of Genesis. So now, even in the New Testament, these three men are brought together in that particular way. And now verse 14 says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly if they, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, Ur of the Chaldees, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, the interesting thing about verse 16 is the word called. God is not ashamed 
to be called their God. Do you know that in the Greek, that word called is slightly unusual, and the actual meaning of the word, well, has anyone got another translation for, I'm reading from the King James Version, anyone reading from another translation here? What else have we got in the room? Any other translations at all? No other translations? So the actual Hebrew word, the Greek word rather, means that God is not ashamed to be surnamed their God. God is not ashamed to be surnamed their God. Oh, now that's an interesting idea. So what's a surname? Tell me what a surname is. Yes. So it's like what you said, it's a family name that identifies the particular child because it could be a Jacob or an Anna and if they were a common Jewish name and there were lots of Jacobs or lots of Annas, then the family name identifies which particular Jacob or which particular Anna. That's a very good, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good summary. So uh, Seth, what's your surname? Sorry? So, so are there any other Seths in the room? No other Seths in the room? Do you think there could be, do you think there might be other Seths within the Christadelphian community? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, names come and go in popularity and suddenly if there's one Seth, there'll be other Seths. You know, and if there's one Anna, there will be lots of other Annas because names sort of become popular in the same generation and suddenly you've got a whole bunch of them. So Seth Thomas is quite helpful because if someone said, well, well now I ask Seth to do this, people say, well, Seth who? Ah, Seth Thomas. Ah, now we understand who you're talking about because the surname identifies which family that person belongs to. Well, God says, now think about this. This is astonishing. What's your name? What's your first name? So imagine, this is what it's really saying. God says he's not ashamed to be surnamed their God. Imagine if there was a Bible passage that says, I'm the God of Daniel, not the Daniel of the Bible, but you. I'm the God of this Daniel. Can you imagine a Bible passage that says that? Or I'm the God of Seth. I mean, that's, you just don't have that. And yet God said, I'm going to surname my name over the top of Abraham, over the top of Isaac, and over the top of Jacob, so that they will be known, I will be known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've surnamed my name over the top of them. I've made that their family name. Now the question is, why? Why did God surname himself over the top of these three men? And the answer is, so simple, but so powerful, that when you see it, you see it. So here it is. So, God entitles himself, Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob. And that's the title that he provides for himself and concerning himself back there in Exodus chapter 3. And why did he do that? Because Yahweh's purpose 
is to manifest himself in the, in the names and the lives of these three patriarchs. Because hidden in these three men was the whole purpose of God. Because the purpose of God is that Yahweh intends to be revealed as a father, which is what Abraham is going to stand for, and he intends to be declared in a son, which is what Isaac is going to stand for, and he will be proclaimed through a multitude, which is what Jacob is going to stand for. And we suddenly realize that these three men are the story of God's plan of how he will manifest himself in all the earth. And so these names were chosen to represent the memorial of his proposed manifestation in the flesh and to identify his selection of the particular family through whom (coughs) such mighty ones of the future would be established. So God had a reason for why he would surname himself as the God of these three men, because hidden in these three men was the story of God's entire purpose. I will be a father, Yahweh the God of Abraham. My purpose will begin in one special son, I am the God of Isaac. And from there, I will develop a whole multitude of mighty ones, I'm the God of Jacob. Now, isn't that interesting? I find that really interesting. That this is why God is associated with these three men in placing his own name upon them because it captured the whole story of God's purpose. I will be who I will be. How will God be who he will be? First through himself, then through a son, then through a whole multitude of a family that would follow afterwards. God says, that's my whole purpose. That's the Yahweh name. I intend to manifest myself in that way and in that order. So what we're going to do in the time we've got left to us is just to go through each of those and have a little look because I want to I want to show you from the scripture how that actually works. So here's the first one. If we have a look at, um, we won't turn all of these passages up, but maybe if we just come back to those Genesis ones, let's just have a look at the, at the Genesis references. So the first one is in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. So in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, and let's just have a look and see how the Bible does make this so clear in terms of, of, uh, of what it teaches. So Genesis 17 says... Verse 4, God speaks with him and says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father. Oh, do you notice that? A father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Avraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. So how is Abraham described? How is Abraham referred to? He's the father, the father figure, the father of many nations. And again, in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, if we just come to that second uh, reference, it says this. Uh, on, the, uh, on the occasion when we're told that, um, that Abraham and his son Isaac went up the mountain, It says in Genesis 22, verse 7, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. My father, my father. 
So Abraham is known both in the Old Testament, we might add in the New Testament as well, he's presented as being the father from whom God's blessings would flow and in whom the promises would originate. And so Yahweh led Abraham through all the emotional experience of fatherhood so that he might enter into the very feelings of God as the father of his own beloved son. And of course, by the way, that reaches a climax, doesn't it, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 22 when he takes Isaac up the mountain. And what we understand from Genesis 22 is that, how do you think, how do you think Abraham felt on the occasion of Genesis 22 when he offered Isaac? He must have felt how God would feel when his son was to be offered. And so Abraham was invited to share in the feelings of how God as a father would feel at the time of offering his son. Abraham's a father. That's the way the divine record shows him. Abraham, throughout the record, Old and New Testament is revealed in that sense and in that way as being a father. That's how the story begins. Well, it's pretty obvious what the next stage would be, if that's true. So if that's what it means, and there's uh, other references there also in the book of Romans, by the way. So, so that, you, those passages, and by the way, these slides will be available um, after the Bible School on the website, so you can download a, a copy of these in PDF form. So both Old and New Testament consistently refer to Abraham as the father, the father, the father. It's almost as if the record marks him out in that, in that special way. So if that's true of Abraham, then what do you think it will be concerning Isaac? And the answer will be obviously, well, if Abraham's the father, then Isaac is going to be the son. And so let's just look at those Genesis references. So Genesis 21 and verses 1 to 7. Just capture this moment in the, in the record and see how clear this is. So in Genesis 21, and this is at the time, incidentally, that, um, that Isaac is, is born. It says this. It says, And Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abram a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abram called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, being eight days old as God had commanded him. And Abram was a hundred years old when Isaac, his son, was born unto him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh so that all that he will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said unto Abram that Sarah should have given children suck, for I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you think Isaac is presented in the record as a son? Absolutely clear. And likewise, in Genesis 22, the very next chapter, you'll remember that the record says that God says to Abram in verse 2 of Genesis 22, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. So as with the Old Testament, so in the book of Hebrews and in the book of James, we will find that Isaac is the son. Not a father. He was a father, of course, but the record focuses attention on Isaac in the, in the divine record, both Old and New Testament, on the fact that he was the son of a father and is presented uh, in the record in that way. So as we've got summarized here, Isaac is presented 
as the miraculous son by whom God's purpose would commence and in whom the promises would begin. And Yahweh led Isaac through the atmosphere of a godly family to be a faithful and obedient son who manifested his father's qualities even under the pressure of great trial. So if that's true of, uh, of, of uh, Abraham and of Isaac, then what about Jacob? And the answer, of course, is that uh, Jacob is uh, actually represented to us in the divine record as the beginning of the multitudinous family that would follow. Now, if you come to Genesis 28, just see how that's done, because, you know, it's really quite astonishing how the Bible carefully marks these men out in in that special way and uh, is consistent in the way that it refers to them. So in Genesis 28, and this is at the time, incidentally, that uh, Jacob was to leave his father, uh, Isaac, to leave his mother, his household, and to go abroad. And the record says in Genesis 28 in verse 3 that, that Isaac says, And God Almighty bless thee, O Jacob, and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. You, Jacob, may you be a multitude of people. And that word multitude and multiply, well, the word multitude there is the Hebrew word kahal. And the word kahal in the Hebrew is the Old Testament equivalent of the word ecclesia in the New, the ecclesia of God, the multitude of God's people. Well, that's Jacob. I want you to become a multitude. May you be blessed into a multitude. Now, again, in Genesis chapter 30, the record says the same thing. Because uh, you remember in the story of, of uh, what happens to, to Jacob and uh, when he works for Laban, the record says in Genesis 30 verse 30, Jacob says, For it is a little which thou hast before I came, and it's now increased into a multitude. Actually, that's Laban speaking to Jacob about his experience with Jacob in his household. When you came, you had little and uh, now it's increased into a multitude. Somehow, Jacob is associated with the multitudinous seed. And likewise, in Genesis chapter 35, the record will say something similar in the 11th verse. In Genesis 35, and verses 10 and 11, it says, And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall, thy name, shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a multitude of nations shall be of thee. And that word company in Genesis 35 and verse 11 is the same word again, kahal, a multitude. May a multitude of nations come out of thee. And that last reference in Genesis 48, which is right at the end of Jacob's life, we're told this, that Jacob himself says at the end of his life, when, when speaking about his experiences, he says in Genesis 48 and verse 3, And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said unto me, Behold, I'll make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a kahal, a multitude of people. So in these three men, 
God's purpose was completely hidden. God the Father, Avraham, who would be manifested in a son, Yitzhak, and finally revealed in a multitude. And so Jacob is presented as being the channel through whom the family of God would increase and through whom the promise would be multiplied. And God led Jacob through the trials and the difficulties of family life as God manifestation was seen in the multitude of his offspring. So let me just have a quotation that summarizes this, and some of you may have seen this before, but it's such an excellent quotation. It actually comes from Brother Thomas, and Brother Thomas says this. He says, men were not ushered into being for the purpose of being saved or lost. I don't know what you think, but to me that's a very, very thought-provoking statement. Men were not ushered into being for the purpose of being saved or lost. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? Oh, so I can be saved? Nope. So I can be lost? Nope. The question's already wrong. At that point, your question is already wrong. Because your question was, why do I exist? And that's already self-centered. God says, you exist so that I can be revealed. Not you. So the whole point of God is that he intends to enthrone himself in a multitude. He intends himself to be seen. Himself to be revealed. Himself to be manifested. And so God manifestation and not human salvation was the great purpose. The salvation of a multitude is incidental to the manifestation but was not the end proposed. Now, by the way, in the Bible, God does promise us salvation. And we rejoice in the hope of salvation. We're thankful for the promise of salvation. But God doesn't say, I will save you so that you can be saved. God says... I will save you so that you can reveal me. I will be who I will be is all about God, not about us. That's what the truth's actually all about. So Brother Thomas says, the eternal spirit intended to enthrone himself upon the earth and in so doing to develop a divine family from among men, every one of whom shall be spirit because born of spirit, and this family shall be large enough to fill the earth when perfected to the entire exclusion of flesh and blood. Guess what family will fill the earth? Anyone like to have a guess? What's the name of the family that will fill the whole earth to the entire exclusion of flesh and blood? The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the only family, that's the only family that will survive. And that's the family we want to belong to. Because in that family lies the key to the hope of all mankind. Because through that family, God will be manifested and his purpose will be realized. Grasp that one lesson and we've just understood what the truth's all about. That is the truth. We're here to become part of God's family to manifest him. So let's close on that thought. And we'll come back to uh, our studies again, God willing, tomorrow.